amount of people legitimately talking to one another. That's a big deal. I, uh, I, I told the sound guys this morning, uh, there's only gonna be like eight people at first service anyway, and I'm so glad to be wrong. Here you are, look at how wonderful it is to have you, and Harley's here too. I'm sorry, I'm such a sucker for babies. I can't see your baby, otherwise I would, I would talk about sleeping and stuff, yeah. Give it time, some of the guys will be doing that in here too in a moment. I'm so happy to be with you this morning. If I've never met you, uh, my name is Brad Beers. I am blessed to be one of the pastors here, and I mean that in a sense of honesty, not in a sense of that's what we're supposed to say uh, when we get up here. Um, I don't know. I hope you had a great week. This week um, was a good week for me, but that didn't mean an easy week for me. And so um, I, will, I may not necessarily be as energetic as I would normally be, but please extend to me the grace and know that uh, I, I don't need further, um, further support. I've got it. I'm, we're good. We're good, okay? Um, we don't always have wonderful weeks, but I had a good week that was filled with hard things. Um, and so I'm excited to talk about Scripture with you because I find so much joy in doing that. Uh, if you need a Bible, we've got some folks in the back that will hand you a Bible if you need to borrow one of ours. Uh, if you are new to our church, if this is your first time, uh, welcome. So glad you're here. There's a card in front of you that tells you a bit about our church. And uh, we've got some people that are wearing name tags out front. If you feel up to it because you want to know a little bit more about our church, go find one of them on the way out and say, hey, I'm new and here's a question that I have or we have a little gift that we would give you just because you're new. We're glad you're here. Um, now that you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Mark. I'm going to continue our series in Mark. You can open it to chapter 15. Uh, but instead of doing what we would normally do, we're taking a chunk and we, and we stand and we read that chunk and then I say something and then you sit down or whatever the case is. We're not going to do that today uh, because we're going to cover from verse 21 till the end of the chapter and I don't know if you're aware, but 23 is flying by. It's already February. And that means Easter is going to be in only in a few weeks. We will inevitably at Easter be talking about the cross. That's a crucial component of the celebration of Easter. And because the cross is the most significant event in history, there is so much more to say about that moment than I can say to you in 30 minutes this morning. So because of this, I'm going to tell you right at the outset that I do not plan to cover everything about the crucifixion, though that is the main subject of our section of text this morning. Instead, here's what I'm going to set out to do. I want to walk through the way that Mark covers this story, focusing on only the things that Mark includes in the story. And I'm going to highlight some things along the way but then I want to come back to one thing and make sure that you understand how significant that one thing is. So that's the goal for this morning. Before we start, I would like to pray. And because I'm up front, I get to do what I want. <laughs> oh, God. I know that you are here. I know that you are interested in what takes place in the next few moments. I know that you want your people to understand this text. 
And so do what is necessary to accomplish that. Speak through me. Speak in spite of me. Say other words to people in the quietness of their heart if that's what they need to hear, but we want to listen to you in this moment. Use this so that we would know more of your greatness. Amen. So in chapter 15 of Mark, up to the point of verse 20, we've heard the story from Mark's account of Jesus being tried in multiple trials. And the verdict of those trials every single time was either a hung jury, more or less, or actually being found innocent. And yet, nonetheless, Jesus is punished. He is ridiculed, he is beaten, and he is now, at the start of verse 21, being led to crucifixion. Look at verse 21 through 23, where we see how Jesus is prepared for his crucifixion. And they, the soldiers that were leading Jesus to his, persecution, or to his crucifixion, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with, wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Evidently, at some point, according to verse 21, what we see is that Jesus was no longer capable of carrying his cross. I'm sure in a room this size, the majority of you are at least somewhat familiar with a crucifix. It looks something like that, though this was not the only type of crucifix that was used, but the two crucial components was something sticking up and something sticking across. And in many cases, the condemned to crucifixion were responsible for carrying that crossbeam. Jesus, having been so significantly flogged, which was covered in the prior text, at some point was incapable of finishing the journey of getting the crossbeam there. And so we're introduced to a person by name. We don't know Simon of Cyrene very well. There's not much to learn about Simon of Cyrene and almost less to learn about his sons, Alexander and Rufus. Why are we told their names? You're going to notice that there are punctuated moments throughout this narrative that Mark, who was the first gospel writer, the first one to stop and say, hey, you need to know this story. Mark was most likely naming names so that if you thought that there was something of question about Mark's narrative, you could go to Simon. You could go to Alexander. You could go to Rufus and say, hey, I heard that this is what happened. Was that the case? And they could verify it. That's why Mark names them. Unfortunately, we don't know much about them, though there's all kinds of things about church tradition if you want to geek out about it, about what things happen to them in the future. They bring him, verse 22, to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull, and there they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This whole wine mixed with myrrh was most likely some form of sedative that was normally offered to the victims of persecution or crucifixion. I keep saying persecution. If I say that from this point forward, just believe me to be trying to say crucifixion and my mouth is broken, okay? But crucifixion, it, it, this was done because crucifixion was pretty much the, the goal of crucifixion was to try to torture the person as much as possible. 
And one of the ways to ensure that shock wouldn't cause them to lose consciousness would be to sedate their pain. Jesus tasted a bit of this and then decided, I'm I'm not going to do that. Then verse 24. And they crucified him, dividing up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Jesus has gone through a series, what we found in Mark's narrative, a series of being clothed and then unclothed, and then clothed with purple linen, and then unclothed, and then clothing, more clothing being put on him. But when you went to your final moment of crucifixion, I don't know if you grew up seeing those Catholic versions of the crucifix with a loincloth covering the most sensitive of areas, most likely that was more just because the artist couldn't bear to, to actually shape that on the crucifix. Jesus was most likely naked to further shame and torture and humiliate the one being crucified. The soldiers who are in charge of his station of crucifixion are, according to verse 24, dividing up his garments among themselves, but they're doing it by casting lots. We don't know precisely what casting lots looked like at this time, but essentially from what we can tell in the literature, it's more or less like drawing straws or flipping a coin or using something of chance to try to determine who gets what. Now, you might think that that's just like an, an interesting detail, but this is the first time that Mark starts to allude to a psalm that you should be familiar with. It's Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, though it is written by David, David describes things happening to him that never actually happened to him. I'm not sure what David was thinking when he wrote it. But one of the things that he describes in Psalm 22 comes in verse 18 when David writes, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. More on that in a moment. Verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Trying to give us some details so that we know kind of where this story is going. The third hour is about 9 o'clock in the morning. That's the time the crucifixion actually started. Verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. When someone was crucified, it was being done because they were, in normal circumstances, found guilty of a significant crime. They were being tortured and humiliated to serve as an example to the rest of the people. So the way to communicate that well to the people that you ought not do something is you put on their crucifix what it was that they did. What did Jesus do? Nothing. There was nothing there. The only thing they could write was the king of the Jews. We learn from other texts. What I said I wouldn't do is looking at the other gospels. We learn from other reasons why it was that king of the Jews was written there. But for now, just suffice that that was the detail that Mark wanted to include. No crime, just king of the Jews. And they crucified, verse 27, two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Mark points out that in contrast to verse 26, that Jesus was being crucified with actual criminals. And robbery during this day was not some cheap form like we often see today where somebody 
cheats someone out of money online or uses a fake gun to try to get their belongings from them. This, these were actual robbers. Then we come to verse 28. According to what text you have, whether you have NAS or you have ESV or NIV, you may find that verse 28, I, I know ESV skips it altogether. It goes 26, 27, 29. Um, just a brief note on this if you're unfamiliar uh, this section is in brackets in the NAS and some other versions primarily because when we've studied what the original manuscript of Scripture is, this verse most likely was not there. But I would tell you and encourage you that this is not a major concern if you're unfamiliar with this idea. There's a science called textural criticism, which I completely geeked out in during my master's program and found it to be like CSI for Bible nerds, trying to like look at all of the different things uh, associated with what text is actually the text. But there are some places generally of disagreement about what should and should not be part of the text. I should tell you that just don't, don't worry. Don't worry. If it's in brackets, it's probably not scripture. If you're a little bit concerned with that, come talk to me afterwards or, or do some independent research about textual criticism. But we get to verses 29 through 32, and we see what was happening as Jesus was being crucified. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying he saved others, but he can't even save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insults. The passerbys as Jesus was being physically tortured and psychologically humiliated in that moment, what was further being added on is that as people watched, they basically were denying everything that Jesus had just taught them about himself. More or less saying, if this guy was legitimate, this wouldn't be happening. If this guy was the real deal, he'd be able to fix this problem himself. But you might miss that Mark is actually talking about Psalm 22 again. Psalm 22 in verses 7 to 8 says this, All who see me, they sneer at me. They separate their lip and they wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Mark is telling the story that they had forgotten. And then nature tells the story to them. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that's, pr that's pretty much around noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. It got unnaturally dark for three distinct hours. I'm not even going to try to stand here and share with you why that would be significant. I just want you to imagine it. If suddenly you looked out that window at 9.05 in the morning and it just got dark, that would freak you out. 
as it should because it's unnatural. God allowing nature to communicate that something significant was happening. And then we come to 34. At the ninth hour, after this three-hour darkness, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you have one of the versions of the text that changes it when it's an Old Testament quotation, the text probably looks different to you. By now, you should know, even without a study Bible, that you could probably find this text in what psalm? Don't be afraid. Psalm 22. It's the opening line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now look at 35 and 36. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran trying to be the class clown. Someone runs and fills a sponge with sour wine and puts it on a stick, a reed, and gives it to him saying, let's see whether Elijah's going to come take him down. It's clear that the people that were there had no clue what Jesus was doing by saying this first line of Psalm 22. Now I've I've taught on this before, so I'm not going to completely unpack everything here other than to just say that the reason why Mark is doing this for us, the reader, is to tell us that the reference points more significantly to the victory that Jesus is achieving in this amazing sacrifice. This is not a moment for Mark of depression. This is a moment of celebration as he reminds us by recording this moment that Psalm 22, 27 through 28 says, all the families of the nations will worship before you, God, for the kingdom is Yahweh's. He rules over the nations over and over again. This word nations referencing not just the Jews that through the sacrifice that is occurring in this moment, that the entire human globe now had access to God. And God wanted to continue with this story. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus finally dies and upon his death, the temple veil is torn and look at what the people reacting, standing there. Look at what they did in verse 39. The centurion, the one that was literally physically closest to Jesus as he died, who was standing right in front of him, said, or saw the way that he breathed his last, and he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Those with a front row seat to the execution found themselves in disagreement with the religious elite. The religious elite who were running around and saying to one another and elbowing each other as they made jokes, this guy can't be it because he can't even save himself. But the people that are actually standing there watching this whole thing go down are like, this, this, this is not normal, people. My job is to kill people like this. Something is strange here. This is not normal. This guy has got to be the son of God. He's no ordinary man. 
And then, as if our witnesses so far weren't enough, we're given more. Special witnesses. It might seem like unnecessary details to you, but I want to tell you why. It's, it's really cool. Verse 40, there were also some women looking on him from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. Like I told you before, in terms of Simon and his sons, Mark is naming off names that you could go check in with. Here's what's cool. Did you notice the gender of these witnesses? Did you? Because it probably was lost on you in terms of significance. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe you've heard somebody tell you this before. Women were not reliable witnesses. Notice I did not say women. Women are not reliable witnesses. I didn't say that. I said women were not reliable witnesses. Couldn't use women to prove a story. Mark says, but they were there. And they saw it. They knew the significance of what was going on, and you can go talk to them. Not only pointing to more witnesses that could verify the story, but starting to show that things that didn't necessarily have equal value in society were going to be different in Christ. Now, speaking of breaking cultural norms, we take a look at the story of the burial in 42 through 47. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now notice this person, Joseph of Arimathea. We know a little bit about him, but notice the time frame that's being pointed out by Mark in verse 20, or 42, that this is all being prepped for before the Sabbath. And Joseph is a prominent member of the council, which means he has significant religious influence. And he gained that significant religious influence by stringently and strictly following the Old Testament law. And what we see in Joseph's actions, in Joseph's actions, is throwing it all down. The Sabbath is starting. The Sabbath started during the nighttime, and we already know that night is real nearby. And Joseph decides that he is going to ceremonially defile himself because of his willingness to recognize the significance of what's occurring. First, verse 43, who did he go talk to? It's in the text, not a trick question. Pilate, is Pilate a Jew or a Gentile? He's a Gentile. Not only is he a Gentile, Jesse taught us last week that he was kind of known for how harsh he was with Jews. You could not do business with a Gentile on the Sabbath. You can't do that. 
You can't participate in the Sabbath if you do business with a Gentile. There was a specific process by which if you did do business with a Gentile, even while you were getting prepared for the Sabbath, you had to go through a specific washing ceremony to ensure that you would be clean for the Sabbath. Pilate would, I'm sorry, Joseph would not have time to conduct that cleansing. He knew by going in, that that would just render him useless for his most important day of the week, going and talking to a Gentile. Now, as an interesting aside, we get 44 and 45. Pilate wondered if he was dead. Jesus was dead at this time and summoned the centurion, and he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Like I told you, crucifixion was specifically a process by which you tried to prolong the torture of the one being crucified. It was not uncommon for people to hang on a cross for days. Jesus having died within one day, Pilate's going, uh, he's dead already? That doesn't make sense. So where does he go? Does he go to one of Jesus' followers to figure it out? Nope. He goes to the Roman guard. The one that was there, most likely saying, there's something strange going on here that's not normal. And verifies through another independent source that Jesus was actually dead. Remember this come Easter. Remember this in some of your conversations with people that do far too much pitiful internet research and try to tell you that the reason why Jesus was able to rise from the dead is that he never actually died. Who was it that proved that he was dead? It wasn't Jews. It wasn't Christians. It was Gentiles, working professionals who were standing there and watching it happen. Back to Joseph, verse 46 he brought a linen cloth, and he took him, Jesus, down and wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. As if it wasn't enough to defile himself by doing business with Pilate, you know what else you couldn't do? Touch dead people. Joseph has gone all in. The Sabbath, I'm not too stressed about it anymore. Do you remember, some of you were, might have been here, and I, I shared with you this harsh truth that initially when the Sabbath was taught by God to his people, do you know what the penalty was originally for not obeying the Sabbath? Death. Now, things had gone soft in the Jewish world at this point. Most likely, Joseph of Arimathea was not going to be put to death for his likelihood, or for his uh, his. Uh, his decision to not obey the Sabbath. But nonetheless, especially as a religious leader, we know that Joseph is completely all in, that Jesus is something special. And if we didn't have enough witnesses, look at how verse 47 is written. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph. We're looking on to see where he was laid. Compare, my friends, verse 47 to verse 40. Are they different? 
I'm going to stand here until somebody answers. How many people are listed in verse 40? How many people are listed as witnesses? Not the descriptions. Don't get thrown off by the James, the Less, and the Josephs. The th How many people, and I'm holding it up to help you out. Nice. Good. Y'all can count. How many people are listed in 47? Two. If you were going to fabricate this story, wouldn't you just keep the list of three? It's just a little detail. I don't want to make too much of it. But when you really stop and slow down and take a look at the text, it becomes all the more real. Salome wasn't there. She was there at the crucifixion. But for some reason, she wasn't there seeing where Joseph entombed Jesus. I don't know why. But I think this lends more to the credibility of the story that Mark is recording. Because if he was just being sloppy, he'd just list all three again. But he just lists the two. And this ends Mark's account of Jesus' death and burial. And like I told you at the outset, I wanted to give you some details of how Mark covers the crucifixion and the burial. But now I want to highlight one easy-to-miss detail. Brad already gave you a nice heads-up that it was coming. But if he didn't, not only because of the pace at which I talked about the text, but even the way that the text is written, one of the shortest verses of the text is probably one of the most significant. It bursts with a significance that cannot be missed. So first, let me tell you about the context of it. After God rescued the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery, he established them as his people by instituting the law. And within that law, he instructed them to build a dwelling for himself, and he gave them a means of operating within that dwelling. This is essentially the place where God and man would get to interact. This started out in the form of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, but later it continued in the construction of formal permanent temples and a priesthood that implemented the sacrificial system. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with this, so I'm going to give you just some broad strokes of what this actually was. If you're unfamiliar, join with me. But let me simply describe it this way. God was instructing his people how to live in, as his unique culture in the world. But he knew that they would fail. Either unintentionally or intentionally, he knew that they would fail and it would damage his relationship to his people. And so to deal with this, God set, set up a system in which animal sacrifice could substitute as a penalty to restore the relationship between God and his people. Now, the duty of offering these sacrifices was not just given to everybody. It was given to a specific subclass, to the priests. And they conducted sacrifices on behalf of the person who wanted to restore his or her relationship with God. All this happened in an area that was a courtyard outside the temple or the tabernacle. But inside that courtyard was also a building where God revealed his presence in a way. 
Inside that building were essentially two rooms, an outer room and an inner room. The outer room was referred to as the holy place, so you know it's special. But then the inner room was called the super-duper holy place, more or less. You might see it as the holy of holies. You might see it listed as the most holy place. This was known as the specifically most holy place. Now, in general, many priests could conduct priestly duties in the courtyard. Many priests could go into the holy place. But there was a physical barrier that divided the holy place from the most holy place. And there was only one person that could go in there. Do you know what the physical barrier was between the holy place and the most holy place? It was a curtain, a veil. The veil protected the priests from essentially what was God's throne room on earth. Behind that veil was an altar, a mercy seat. It was, for Raiders of the Lost Ark fans, the Ark of the Covenant, which was more or less God's throne. And God was communicating to the people that though I will be present with you, if you approach my throne directly, you won't be able to handle it. You're going to die. So he protected the people from himself by using the veil. There were literally thousands of priests at any given time doing the work that needed to be done for the sacrificial system, but only one could enter behind this veil, the high priest. And he could only do it one time a year on a day that's now called Yom Kippur. We know it in English as the Day of Atonement. Jesse has taught you about the mercy seat before. He's taught you about this word propitiation. He's taught you about atonement. Some of the most significant theological concepts for you to understand that essentially you, and when I say you, I'm in that boat with you, we are broken. And something needs to be done to fix it. When that high priest on the day of atonement, according to the instructions given to him in Leviticus chapter 16, when that high priest was allowed to go in behind the veil, upon entry, he had to take smoking incense with him as a literal smoke screen. He had to have smoke in front of his eyes and he had to specifically wash and he had to specifically sprinkle blood in certain particular ways. Because if he failed to follow instructions, he would be struck dead. Because you had not taken Yahweh seriously enough. Not taken Yahweh seriously enough. Yahweh was not a God to be trifled with. The veil served as a protective barrier so that men might not die in the presence of God's holiness. Look at verses 37 and 38. 
And Jesus uttered a loud cry. And he breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn. I hate speaking and crying at the same time. The veil was torn from top to bottom. We're not entirely sure the size of the veil, but we know it was big. And we know that the tearing of the veil from top to bottom could not be done easily. What was happening due to Jesus' death? Man no longer needed to be shielded from God. I got to keep going, so excuse the awkwardness of my voice. (laughs) Due to Jesus' death, man no longer needed a representative to approach God for him. The veil was torn. Due to Jesus' death, man no longer has to cower in fear because they will be condemned. Due to Jesus' death, mankind could now approach and be reunited with the God that had to be taken seriously. The veil was torn. If you need further proof that I'm crying for a good reason, you can look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me. The writer of Hebrews that so crucially wanted people to understand the significance of who Jesus was and what Jesus did, writes these verses in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through what? The veil And it was through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. My friends, if you place your faith in Christ, you can enter with confidence into God's throne room. You don't belong there. I don't belong there. You can't do good enough things to make yourself belong in the throne room of God. But no longer need you be protected from it because of what Jesus did. You have direct access to God, the God of the universe, and he does not condemn you. In Christ, you are clean. Jesus' death was horrifying. It was torturous. It was miserable. And it is the biggest cause of celebration that you could have. So when it comes time to celebrate, we take communion. 
I'm going to invite the musicians to come back up and if you're in the room to help pass out communion, I'd appreciate you to come up and help out. But when we take communion, what we're doing is physically using something specific so that it doesn't just go from our minds and then we move into our snowy week. Instead, we remember what Matthew records that while Jesus and his disciples were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for forgiveness of sins. The veil was torn and you are not condemned. Each time we do this, we do it maybe a little bit differently. So in preparation, what I'd like you to do is, as we're passing out the elements, take a moment to reflect on the significance of this moment of what Jesus has done. Take a moment to reflect about the access that you now have because the veil is torn and respond appropriately. That may be through the request of forgiveness. That may be through a reset. That may be a restarting. That may be celebration. It may be everything wrapped up in one. But take that moment. The band will sing a song and I invite you to remain seated while those elements are there. And then when you are ready in that moment, take those elements as Jesus offered them to you. And we will worship together. sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, he took a salvation where your love poured out over me now my soul cries out hallelujah praise and honor My debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin 
has no hold on me. Whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. Now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus did. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. The sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah. Praise and Thank you. 